0: This is a special Uncommon Sense podcast for 3 FM with Amy Mullins. The interview you're about to hear is with Hong Kong-based lawyer and author Anthony Dapperin. Anthony joined me on the show to talk about his new book, City on Fire, The Fight for Hong Kong. Anthony's book takes us to the front lines of Hong Kong's 2019 protest movement. We also discuss how Hong Kong is currently dealing with the COVID-19 coronavirus pandemic. So I'm really pleased now to welcome Anthony to the show and thank you so
1: much for joining us. Good morning, and it's great to be with you again.
0: Good morning. Now, Anthony, I am aware from your email newsletter that you send out, which is also just fantastic, I've got to say, um, that you had a bit of a a trip overseas, and you came back into Hong Kong and uh, are now following their quarantine or self-isolation arrangements, and they seem to be pretty rigorous,
1: Yes that's right I'd been in the in the UK for a couple of weeks and and came to Hong Kong after they'd introduced a new requirement that anyone firstly, only allowing Hong Kong residents back into Hong Kong, um, and then that anyone who was coming back into Hong Kong would have to undergo a compulsory 14-day home quarantine, which is, of course, better than I understand um, some of the people entering Australia now have with uh, quarantine arrangements in a hotel. But we have to do um, home quarantine. And it was a really very impressive process that the government had put in in place at the airport for all the new arrivals. Everyone arriving had their temperature taken and then had were were given sample kits and had to submit um, samples to be tested for the virus. Um, And then everyone has to download an app onto their phone um, and are given a, a wristband, which has a sort of little tracking device in it, I guess, some kind of a chip that then connects through Bluetooth to the app on your phone um, and through the location services on your phone, um, make sure that you are following the home quarantine requirement. And apparently this this device, if you leave your home during the 14 days quarantine, um, will alert the authorities so that they can come and and check on you breaking the quarantine. Now, on the the one hand, it sounds a little bit dystopian that the government sort of clipped these devices onto you and and are tracking your location. But um, on the other hand, it is only for the 14 days of the quarantine and it is frankly reassuring to know that everyone coming into Hong Kong and knowing that, most of the new cases we're seeing here now are imported cases, that they actually are being tracked and enforced pretty effectively by the government. So um, it, was a, it was a real procedure entering but extremely efficient in the way I guess you'd expect Hong Kong to be and, and, and very thorough and it was, was really quite reassuring to get a sense that the government here does seem to have the, the, the process of keeping the virus under control pretty well, um, pretty well handled.
0: Mm. And what day are you up to in that 14-day period?
1: Uh, I've only got a couple of days to go now. So Thursday night, midnight, I'll be uh, I'll be free. Uh, so uh, yeah, almost there.
0: It's <laughs> very exciting. Um, no doubt, That's... you must be quite well. Then you're not feeling any symptoms.
1: Yeah, completely fine. Yeah, um, That's great. yeah I have no, no issues at all. And in fact, the Hong, the Hong Kong government. Um, release every day updates of course on, on infections and one of the one of the one of the items of data they release is um, information on every imported case that tested positive which flight they came in on and which seat they were sitting in wow. um, and I've been check I've been checking that list very uh, closely of course and I'm happy to see that there were no cases on the flight that I came in on so um that was very very reassuring as well
0: It's really amazing the level of um, technology use that we're seeing in places like Hong Kong and also Singapore, who seem to really be far ahead of um, Australia in that use of um, technology. It took us a number of weeks to even have a website with a dashboard of the number of cases and which local government area they were in. So um, it's really great to see that there's a lot of advanced use of technology elsewhere.
1: Yeah, and I think it helps for places like Hong Kong and Singapore in particular that they are geographically so small. So it's I guess it's easy for a government to administer administer in that sense. Um and look the 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 tech here is pretty good. The internet coverage here is fantastic and I've gotta say I had to chuckle a bit when I saw some statement coming out of Australia that the government was worried that if everyone was working from home in Australia, the internet might struggle to cope given (laughs) the the internet infrastructure in Australia. We don't have any of those issues here. We have um, super fast connections to everyone's homes and and very good coverage Mm. with mobile data. And so, yeah, I I think that's one of the benefits of having a geographically small place.
0: Yes, same as in South Korea. And I think if the internet Mm. wasn't good, you would definitely be hearing about it from the citizens.
1: Yes, that's right.
0: Now, um, you do mention uh, in a number of – well, in one of your articles that I believe will be released that um, Hong Kong and other um, countries have had a history of dealing with uh, large-scale epidemics and it would be Mm. really not lost on many um, that those would remember the SARS epidemic um, from the early thousands in 2003. So um, in terms of Hong Kong's experience, do Dealing with an epidemic, um, what do you think they've really learned that they've put into place here? Because I note that um, as far as I'm aware, Hong Kong still has four deaths out of about 915 positive cases.
1: Yeah, SARS hit Hong Kong really hard back in 2003. It was the place that had, I think, the most deaths than any other place in 2003 with SARS um, and really had a big impact on the community. But but luckily, SARS, unlike the, the current uh, COVID-19 virus, was easily to detect at, at an early stage. And so those cases that were detected were quickly hospitalised and isolated. So it didn't have the same spreading effect through the community that it had with this virus. But what it meant was that there were, there were sort of two things that resulted from the SARS experience in Hong Kong. The first was that the, the, the government just had developed its its mechanisms and its machinery and its policies to, to deal with an epidemic like this. And, and I think the healthcare system was well prepared for it. So that when this virus came around, there were already procedures that they had used during SARS that they were able to sort of activate and an, an update and use that experience in in managing SARS to help them manage this virus, but but secondly, and, and perhaps more importantly, is just the community awareness. Ever ever since SARS, things like wearing face masks in public has become a you know, very big part of 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 local culture in Hong Kong. You know, during flu season, you know, everyone will be you know, wearing masks on the on, on the public transport. If you if you cough on a train in, in Hong Kong without wearing a mask in flu season, you know, look out for the the angry looks you're going to get from the people around you. So there's a very high community awareness of of, of hygiene, of the spread of disease, of the need to take precautionary measures like like wearing face masks and these kind of things. And I think that community awareness has really served Hong Kong well. Um, the moment that Hong Kong has learned there was this virus spreading in, in the mainland China across the border, at the beginning of this year, um, the community really reacted pretty quickly in terms of everyone um, getting face masks I and mean, to the extent that you know, they, there was panic buying of face masks in Hong Kong and they all sold out. Um, people stopped going out as much. They sort of just naturally began to, to, to do social distancing and self-isolating as a natural reaction you know just given that that experience of SARS and and knowing the right way to behave to to, to stop this becoming worse so uh, that's really the the two key legacies of of SARS that have helped Hong Kong through this particular crisis at least so far.
0: Mm, It's very interesting and um, yeah (laughs) I can only imagine with some of the packed trains that you would normally get in Hong Kong that uh, it would be very dangerous for anyone to be coughing um, certainly for their social standing. Um, Now I would would like to go um, to your book, City on Fire, uh, which is subtitled The Fight for Hong Kong. It would be pretty difficult for anyone to have missed the Hong Kong protests last year. They were so uh, visible, so strong in numbers and also covered fairly well for a significant Uh, portion of time in the media around the world, of course, to varying degrees of nuance. Um, But I would like to, I guess, go back to the chronological start, um, because when I was reading through your book, there was one story that I really felt I hadn't actually had exposure to, though I'm sure in Hong Kong it would have been different. And that was about the case that uh, first pushed off this extradition bill and and moved it along into into creation and um, was taken up by Carrie Lam, the chief executive of Hong Kong. And this is the um, absolutely horrible um, crime that was committed or has been alleged to have been committed in in Taipei. And I was wondering if you could share with us that story because I feel that that is an important um, point to the start of this uh, protest movement.
1: Yeah, um, certainly. And it's a very tragic story. So uh, the really, the, the whole saga of of the protests last year in Hong Kong began with um, uh, a murder. Uh, what happened was there was a young Hong Kong couple, um, uh, a 19-year-old guy, Chan Tung Kai, and, and his girlfriend, Pan Hu Wing, who I think was 20 at the time. Um, and they'd been dating for a few months. They'd met working in a small business up in, 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 in the Hong Kong suburbs in Kowloon. And they... Uh, uh, they'd been dating for a few months. Um, she fell pregnant, um, although she'd kept her pregnancy to herself. And then the two of them went on a romantic weekend getaway um, on Valentine's Day weekend in 2018. And they went for a weekend getaway to Taipei in Taiwan, a pretty common pretty common destination for Hong Kongers looking to get on a weekend away. They have a lot of good food in Taipei. They have night markets. They have um, hot springs in the hills around Taipei. And it's a, it's a very common place for young Hong Kongers to go. So the two of them went on this this romantic getaway. Um, unfortunately, while they were there, um, they got into an argument, um, uh, a fairly heated argument. Um, during that argument, um, Poon told Chan that the the baby she was carrying was not his, and and reportedly he she showed him photos of her uh, uh, in intimate situations with other men, um, and he flew into a rage, um, and and allegedly or reportedly um, murdered her, strangled her. Um, then he packed her body into a, into a suitcase, a a large pink wheelie suitcase. Um, and the next day got on the the subway in Taipei and went out to the Taipei suburbs and, and, and dumped her, dumped her body in a park, uh, and then returned back to Hong Kong, uh, without her. When he got back to Hong Kong and, and her parents realized that she was missing, he simply said that he had, um, he had uh, they'd had a fight and they'd gone their separate ways and he didn't know where she was, but the examination of the the CCTV footage of, of what had happened in that hotel and the comings and goings of the hotel you know, quickly revealed that, that that something was amiss and police interviewed Chan in Hong Kong and he he confessed you know confessed to the murder um, and then the Taipei and he told told police where the body was and, and the Taipei police found the body. And there was really a, a very poignant scene that um, when the Taipei police were in that park looking for the body, it's apparently a Taiwanese tradition to to call out to the spirit of the dead person. And so they were calling out uh, these police as they were searching the field were calling out, um, uh, Miss Poon, please help us find you so we can t- take you safely home. Um, and indeed they found the body where, where Chan said it was, it was located. Now so far, this is sort of the kind of, you know, tabloid perhaps murder story that you'd read about anywhere and you wouldn't think that this would lead to anything in particular. Um, But it was a particular conundrum because um, the murder had happened in Taiwan, in Taipei, which is a separate jurisdiction to Hong Kong, and Chan was now in Hong Kong and had allegedly confessed to the murder in Hong Kong. But under Hong Kong law, he couldn't be put on trial for murder that was committed Outside of Hong Kong, Hong Kong law only allows you to be tried for murders that are committed here on on Hong Kong soil. And at the same time, there is no extradition agreement between Hong Kong and Taiwan to extradite suspects to face trial in, in, in Taiwan. And so the Hong Kong government was, was faced with this conundrum. What do we do with with this this guy who has apparently confessed to this to this murder? We can't try him here. Um, how are we going to be able to get him to Taiwan to face justice? And what the Hong Kong government hit upon as the solution, and there were, there were there were many other possibilities, but the solution they hit upon was to introduce a new law that would allow uh, criminal suspects to be extradited anywhere uh, to face trial, um, and that would include Taiwan, but also most importantly for the people of Hong Kong. it would also include mainland china um, and that was really what started the whole controversy that this law the government said was really introduced intending to, to really have justice for, 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 for Miss Poon, for her murder, was in effect through the back door um, breaking down that firewall between Hong Kong and mainland China, enabling the mainland Chinese authorities to reach into Hong Kong and, and grab people and take them back to the mainland for criminal trials in in mainland courts. And so that was what began the whole protest movement. Um, uh, which devolved into then the, the months of, of of violent protests that we saw on the streets here last year. But it, it is a very, sort of very tragic story. And I think the most tragic of all, though, the point that really struck me, was these two young Hong Kongers were exactly like the thousands of young Hong Kongers that I saw on the streets protesting last year. And I couldn't help thinking that if this had all come about through a different confluence of events and, and that tragic murder hadn't occurred, they would probably be out there side by side with their friends and, and classmates um, protesting in the way that everyone else was um, last year. So it's a it's a it's a, it's a really a, a tragic case. As of as of now, Chan is is still in Hong Kong. He's um, said that he's willing to give himself up to the Taiwanese authorities. He's he's willing to cooperate. He's he seems very remorseful. Um uh, but so far, the legal wrangling has continued, and I don't think that's yet reached a point where he's managed to to get to Taiwan to face trial.
0: Yes, and um, one of the elements of this was that when uh, Chan came back to Hong Kong, he used uh, Poon's ATM card, and so mm. he was tried over in Hong Kong for that smaller offence of money laundering, which he pleaded guilty to. Um, is he still in prison?
1: No, he was released actually while the protest was still going on last year. So, yeah, he had he confessed to that money laundering, that money laundering case and he'd been initially jailed It was only a short jail sentence for that. Um uh, I think less than a year. Um and so that was one of the things the authorities were using to try and push this extradition law through. They were saying, look, he's he's only in jail for this money laundering charge. It's a stopgap measure. He's going to be released and we need this resolved then we need this new law to be in place um, before his money laundering sentence finishes so that he can quickly be extradited immediately after that. But um, so that was the excuse they were using to try and push the law through. They weren't successful. The protests stopped that from happening. Um, and so Chan was, was released when he finished his sentence um, late last year and apparently is in a is in a, a safe house somewhere in Hong Kong.
0: And uh, in terms of the extradition bill and its original form, and the crimes that were encompassed within it, it wasn't obviously just murder that was part of mm. that um, bill. What were some of those other crimes which really formed the crux of um, the concerns of people and uh, whether they might be tried over in mainland China for other crimes?
1: Yeah, so that was that was the issue. It wasn't just violent crimes or the kind of serious crimes that you would expect um would be covered by an extradition bill things like you know, drug trafficking or those sorts of things it, it really covered a, a very wide range of crimes um uh it, it would capture things like um uh, bribery and corruption uh vice offenses um offenses um, involving uh, uh, so, so theft offenses and these sorts of things. And, and also, more importantly, it would involve aiding and abetting as well. So, so the net was cast very wide. Um, when the um, the business lobby under suddenly got wind of this and understood the implications for them, if they'd been involved in, for example, um, commercial crimes in the mainland, they quickly lobbied and the government sort of caved to try and win their support by excluding certain commercial crimes from the scope of the bill, so things like um, bankruptcy-related um, crimes, corporate crimes, were were excluded, and that was sort of a, a sop to the business lobby. But corruption was still included, and that was something that was really of concern to the business lobby because, um, uh, as one pro Beijing business sector politician said in a perhaps a moment of unguarded candor you know everyone has to, effectively he said everyone has to you know bribe people in the mainland to get business done that was just sort of the way we operate um, and so they were very nervous that they would suddenly find themselves um, at the wrong end of an extradition request for some bribery offenses in the mainland so um, it was it was really very broad and that was that was part of people's concern
0: yes and um, over in the mainland China we've seen Xi Jinping the president be quite open about the fact that he was conducting um, anti-corruption campaigns and um, certainly picking up figures that he believed had been engaged in corruption over in mainland China. So that was one element that um, certainly was already happening over there. Mm. Um, But you also highlight that there are or were a couple of cases, um, one around uh, book publishers who um, had also kind of mysteriously disappeared uh, and there were concerns around the kind of freedom of speech speech, freedom of the press, um, some Mm. of the academics who have um, been quite open in their criticism of um, the Chinese Communist Party government. What are some of those contextual considerations that concerned a number of um, Hong Kongers around free speech and and those issues? Mm.
1: Yeah. So this was something else that was at at the the back of people's minds when they were starting to get worried about this extradition law the government was proposing. Um, There'd been a couple of cases in the past uh, where effectively mainland security agents had come into Hong Kong and uh, effectively abducted people across the border. Um, And there were two particularly notable cases. One was the booksellers case that you mentioned. There was a publisher here in Hong Kong that really made its had a business of publishing fairly salacious books about about mainland Chinese politicians um, and mainland Chinese political issues. Um, you know, fairly thin-sourced, um, sensationalist stories about you know uh, Chinese leaders and their mistresses and their ill-gotten gains and these sorts of things. Um, now, all of that is is perfectly legal to publish in hong kong there is freedom of speech and freedom of the press here in hong kong but obviously having these kind of books and they were often sold at the airport and mainland chinese tourists would sort of snap them up at the airport and take them back home to read um, was really rankling the authorities and so a number of these booksellers were uh, abducted um some from hong kong uh one from his holiday home in thailand gui minhai a very notable case um and they were taken back across the border and imprisoned for a, a period of time some were eventually released um, Guiminhai is still under arrest in the the mainland today. Um, And so that was the first case. The second case was a a mainland billionaire called Xiao Jianhua, who was um, uh, known as a a banker to China's elite. Um, He was a a very, very wealthy man. He had, again, like many others, fallen under suspicion of, of corruption and decided it was safer to be out of the mainland. So he was living at the Four Seasons Hotel in a penthouse suite here in Hong Kong. Um, and he also was mysteriously taken away in the dead of night uh, and spirited across the border by mainland security agents. Now, uh, on the one hand, people were saying, you know, "Look, you know, if, if if China does this, you know, even without an extradition law in place, um, imagine what will happen when they have one and they can have free reign to take whoever they want you know, through the legal system. That would be even worse. At least when they're forced to kidnap people, there's some pretty adverse PR with that." Um, and, and the government responded and said, "Look, we've specifically." excluded political offences from the bill. So the extradition law specifically said if someone's accused of political crimes or political offences, they won't be able to be extradited. But everyone quickly... Noticed that you know, these people, even the people who were abducted, were not specifically abducted for political crimes. Xiao Jianhua would have been said to be um, uh, taken back to face bribery offences, which were part of the bill. The booksellers um, apparently were uh, were charged with illegally selling publications across the border into mainland China through their mail order business. Um, and Guiminhai was facing charges from a traffic offence from from ten years ago. So people said, you know, that that protection of excluding political offences is not very effective when the mainland will always find other reasons or other excuses to charge people and extradite them if they want them back. So these cases where people had clearly committed political wrongs and were, you know, gotten on the wrong side of the authorities in the mainland and, and then were abducted, abducted across the border really put people on edge. And, and the prospect of an extradition law that made that even easier for the mainland authorities was really one of the things that that brought people out in such strong opposition to this bill and, and started the huge protests.
0: Mm. And do you think it would be safe to say that the uh, Hong Kong government or administration uh, were caught by surprise with the um, not just apprehension but real pushback, strong pushback that they initially received from the Hong Kong community? And uh, do you th- why do you think they may not have been anticipating that kind of pushback? Yeah.
1: You know, um- I think they, they must have been surprised um, otherwise they wouldn't have ended up with with two million people on the street so you, you you have to think that you know no government would proceed with something thinking that it would generate that level of opposition um, so I think they must have been surprised but as to why they were that remains something of a mystery to me because all these these issues that were of concern to people the the, 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 the bookseller case of the bookseller abduction. The, the, the questions with rule of law across the border, the, the anxiety in Hong Kong about mainland influence, none of these things were, were a secret. They were out in the open for everyone to see. And so why the government didn't make the connection um, is, is frankly a bit of a mystery. Now, one reason why they mightn't have is that just a, a year earlier, the government had similarly had a proposal to uh, open up a new train station in, in Hong Kong, the West Kowloon High Speed Rail Station that connects to the high-speed rail network across the rest of mainland China. And as part of those arrangements, they wanted to have – make it a sort of a a one-stop process for people to get on the train and travel across the border into the mainland and have all the the, the immigration and security checks in one place. And so they effectively leased a part of that station to the mainland authorities who were then able to station – mainland security agents, mainland border enforcement agents, and also to apply mainland law on the mainland border side of the station, yet on Hong Kong soil. And at first, that generated a bit of an uproar, particularly among Hong Kong's Democrats, basically saying, look, you're giving the mainland security authorities uh, a a base inside Hong Kong from which they they can conduct exactly these kind of operations that we're worried about. And you're making mainland law apply technically on a part of hong kong soil and that doesn't that, that that shouldn't be happening. and so there was a bit of an uproar but once the station opened and people started taking the trains and realizing how convenient it was to to be able to travel you know back and forth you know easily with with, with no additional border checks um, the, the uproar sort of died down. Um, and and i think perhaps the administration thought that this would be another one of those cases where there'd be a lot of fuss and noise generated by the hong kong pro-democrats but then after the thing actually went through things would, would die down again. And they just, they just made the wrong gamble and didn't realize that this wasn't an issue that would blow over as easily as that last one.
0: Mm. And um, obviously we won't be able to, to touch on each kind of protest and how it built um, incrementally. That's something people mm. can visit in your book, City on Fire. But I would like to, I guess, look at it broadly in the sense that you um, highlight that it started off uh, relatively peacefully, though still in pretty high numbers of around 130,000 with an initial kind of protest against it that was very peaceful and I guess low-key mm. in a relative sense and then it just kept building and building and we saw, um, as you said, two million on the streets packed into those um, really narrow streets where there's so many skyscrapers surrounding um, the streets and then also mm. those uh, protesters moving into other areas like the Legislative Council known as the Co, mm. and also uh, Hong Kong Airport there were so many kind of major pivotal moments and key disruptions within Hong Kong that the protesters engaged in, and then, of course, a big standoff at one of the universities. From your mm. mind, and, and now, I guess, I know you were there um, a lot of the time um, and and part or at least very close to a lot of the protesters and the protests and seeing how things were up front, but now that you've had a chance, I guess, to reflect and to look at things um, in in a really big-picture view... How do you explain the gradual escalation of protests and the way that it evolved?
1: Yeah, I think there were probably two key factors at play that led to the protests continuing for so long and getting, I guess, increasingly violent, if you want to put it that way. Um, The first was just the intransigence of the government. Um, The government really refused to engage with the protesters or the community, refused to to discuss any of their demands, only made small concessions very, very slowly and very late in the process. Um, And that just really stoked frustration and unhappiness in the community. And that kept people coming out and kept them angry. And, And the mistake that the government also made was that they would make key concessions after there had been perhaps moments where the protesters had become more extreme, after they had clashed with police um, or, and, and engaged in more disruptive conduct was when the government then you know turned around and made a small concession. And so, in fact, during that break into the Legislative Council headquarters that you just mentioned, one of the pieces of graffiti that, that the protesters left on the walls of the Legislative Council chamber was, it was you who taught us that peaceful protest doesn't work. Um, and so it was very much the, the, the behaviour of, of the government stoking that frustration and that anger um, and, and not really taking any steps to try and defuse the sentiment and 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 figure out a way to negotiate with the protesters so that was the first thing and the second thing was is really the the conduct of the police um, the police were um, put in a very difficult position by the government to be fair the government basically disappeared and and the police were pushed to the front line of the conflict and the government was trying to treat this political problem as a law and order problem. Um, And therefore the police were pushed to the front line in in a position they arguably should not have been in. But the police responded with fairly violent tactics from very early on. Um, One of the key features of Hong Kong last year was the use of tear gas by the police. And the reason why I I opened the book with a a fairly detailed chapter on on tear gas is because it just became such a feature of of daily life in Hong Kong last year. Um, We had tear gas fired on the streets of Hong Kong every single weekend but one for seven months um, and many nights during the week as well um tear gas was something that everyone became aware with uh, aware of everyone had been affected by it at some point everyone was trying to think about how to get around it or avoid it or or deal with it or counter it um and so just the fact that, that the police were using it so indiscriminately um you know often as a first resort rather than a last resort um it was very alarming, and then the other mm-hmm. uh, sort of coercive tactics that the police were using, from rubber bullets and beanbag rounds, through ultimately to to, to real bullets, um, shooting a number of uh, another number of cases of live ammunition being fired at their protesters, and, and, and thankfully no one was was killed in those instances. But this ex, ex, sort of acceleration of violence by the police and a sense that the police were increasingly not accountable for their actions, led to, again, a great deal of anger in the community. And what was interesting was that as the protests developed, they moved from being initially about the extradition bill. And and of course, eventually, several months in, the government conceded that that the extradition bill would not go ahead and they withdrew it, but became not only a a, a pro-democracy movement asking for more democracy and more autonomy for Hong Kong, but also really an anti-police movement and and protesting against the police violence. Um, And so that the the very violence that the police were using to try to stop the protests had the the exact opposite effect of stoking up anger and making the protests continue.
0: Yes, excellent points. And um, it was really interesting to see that uh, opening chapter on tear gas because it is very evocative and um, it also... Um, highlights, I guess, some of the crowd dynamics and the ways that um, the protests evolved and also the way that the Hong Kongers' mentality evolved um, and hardened against the um, tear gas tactic. And uh, Mm. what was very interesting that you highlighted was the, um, I guess, British legacy of tear Mm. gas in Hong Kong. Could you share with us um, that, that little really interesting element to the story?
1: Yeah. So uh, tear gas is, is technically a, a chemical weapon. Um, and it's it's illegal under the Geneva Con- Convention to, to use tear gas in, in, in times of war, um, as with other chemical weapons. Um, and this has been the case since after World War One. But the British colonialists, when they were faced with protests in, in India and the African colonies and elsewhere um, in the mid-20th century, suddenly faced a conundrum that they didn't want to be seen to be Firing real bullets at, at at civilians in protests, and particularly protests involving women and children. So they they figured out a fudge, and and to, and they figured out that they thought that the tear gas would be a better solution. And so they figured out a fudge to say that uh, if we give people warning, fair warning that we're going to use tear gas, and an opportunity to escape it, then uh, that would sort of mitigate the problems of using it. And and also, the Geneva Convention applies to war, but it doesn't apply to domestic law enforcement operations within a country. So we can use this fudge to to get around the Geneva Convention and uh, basically use tear gas on our own people or on the colonies, the people of the colonies that we're, we're, we're occupying. Um, and so what they decided to do to sort of have this fair warning is that the police would have to hold up a a banner saying warning tear smoke before they fired the tear gas. Um, And interestingly, they used the term tear smoke rather than tear gas because they felt that using the term gas would be evocative of of things like mustard gas and chlorine gas and the things that were used to such horrible effect on the battlefields of World War I. So they thought tear smoke sounded more innocuous and with this very quaint banner that would be enough to to justify the use of tear gas on civilian populations. And that banner is still used today. Um, Every time the police in Hong Kong fire tear gas, they'll hold up a a black banner that says in Chinese and English, warning, tear smoke, um, and they'll fire that upon the crowds. Um, And and so it was interesting that this legacy of colonialism, something that was used originally by the British to, to police the colonies, um, it, it is using, being used today in, in Hong Kong, and the other interesting connection, I suppose, with with, with the, the British legacy, is the the, the the link back to Northern Ireland. So, Northern Ireland during the Troubles was the first place that tear gas was used on on, on actual British soil. Um, And the reaction of the communities in Northern Ireland to that tear gas, as noted by um, many observers, including Simon Winchester, the the famous writer who was a a correspondent in Belfast at the time, um, was that tear gas really actually had the effect of bringing the gassed people together into a a solid community and and really generating this, this hatred at the people who were gassing them. And we saw the exact same effect here in Hong Kong last year that the community really rallied around uh, united and the number of times that i'd seen crowds tear gas and they, they'd break away and sort of run from the tear gas and as soon as the gas dispersed they would come back unite again as a crowd and they would be shouting or chanting uh which means go Hong Kongers. um and this you could see this identity really building and forming and coalescing within the clouds of tear gas as it was happening. Um, So it's another interesting link back to a similar effect that was in Britain uh, during the Northern Ireland Troubles.
0: Indeed, and obviously um, one of the elements that you um, draw attention to in this book and in that chapter around tear gas was the fact that um, once protesters had figured out how to manage some of the risks of tear gas, that they um, were more banded together and obviously... Mm better prepared to deal with the different tactics that police were deploying. Um, that said, it didn't stop them from firing tear gas. And towards the end of the book, you literally list the different locations where you yourself were subject to tear gas. And it, there is too many to actually name on radio right now. But <laughs> <laughs> from your personal perspective, having been there and experienced it, um, and also just being part of the crowd and, and knowing of uh, first, hand, how this um, protest movement was um, evolved and experienced by Hong Kongers, what were some of those things that you've really taken away that are still quite um, visceral and have left a mark on you?
1: Um, Certainly the the experiences were very, very, very visceral. Um, I I think to an extent the whole city... um, is in a bit of a state of of PTSD after the events of last year. I think we're probably all still processing it. I think it's interesting that this virus has sort of been a bit of a um – a bit of a circuit break, or it's rather put things on pause. It's put on pause the street protests, obviously, because people are still angry and there's still very strong sentiment in support of the protests, but people are not gathering in large numbers on the streets for obvious reasons right now. So it's put a pause to that, but it's also put a pause to the processing of the experience. Um, You know, the the virus is consuming here as in everywhere else in the world, everyone's attention and bandwidth and, and media at the moment. And just the process of thinking through what we experienced and how we deal with it and what legacy it's going to leave for us as individuals and as a community, I think is, is, has been paused and hasn't been completed yet. Um, but so I think that's something that I think Hong Kong as a whole is still going to have to have to deal with. Um, but for me, it was, it was just really, um, of course, you know, a very, a very visceral uh, adrenaline inducing experience to be out there on the streets. Um, you know, uh, uh, observing the protests and observing the police. Um, but I think the most striking, the most striking legacy, really, is just the the, the 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 community spirit, the togetherness of the community. The fact that people from from all walks of life came together, all contributed in different ways. So not everyone was at the front lines, you know, clashing with police, but there were people passing supplies, um, people creating online memes and posters, people creating artwork. Uh, people sort of donating their help or their services or their skills in other ways. And it was really a whole community effort. And I think that community spirit continues to be there, um, not only as part of the sort of pro-democracy movement in opposition to the government, but also in, in combating the virus. And there's been community spirit in terms of people uh, donating goods, donating face masks, helping out the needy, sharing information in the community. And I think this really goes to show that uh, that, that a community that perhaps people in the past might have thought was was um aloof or not engaged or, 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 or isolated. Um is in fact very strong and very together. And it's amazing what a community can achieve when they come together. And I hope that's something that communities around the world are discovering now as as we all face a a common enemy, really.
0: Mm. And you do mention there that togetherness and sense of community. And um, it became really striking towards the end of these protest movements that there was a lot of um, scuffles breaking out on the streets and a lot of division between uh, people from mainland China China and those who support mainland China and the people who are part of the Hong Kong protest movement and or supporting that movement. And there was just a a lot of strong words on both sides, I guess, um, Mm. really getting uh, very, very much invested in this uh, this conflict and this movement, and I wonder whether um, where we stand, I guess, in that sense of ha- have those divisions been healing? Because I sense that there were people not just um, from mainland China and from Hong Kong, but also expats who started to feel very strongly about this issue.
1: Mm. Yeah, and it's it's, it's it's interesting. This goes all, all the way back to to what you were saying at the top of the program about racism. Um, But you're right, there are very deep divisions within the Hong Kong community. There are a significant part of the community that do support the government and support Beijing, uh, many recent immigrants from the mainland. Um, And so Hong Kong is a very deeply divided society. And and one aspect of the protests that we saw that was um, unfortunate and particularly ugly was this anti-mainland xenophobia. So stoked by a sense that um, the protesters were concerned about Beijing's interference in Hong Kong um, and the influence of of the mainland in Hong Kong. That was then, by extension, in the protesters' mind, also applied to the influence of mainland people in Hong Kong, and has indeed led to some fairly ugly racism and xenophobia among some of the protesters against mainlanders here in Hong Kong. Um, and sadly, that's also continued through with the coronavirus. People here um, have been, you know, in some sectors of the community, blaming. The mainland for the virus. In particular, I think they're angry at what they perceive as the mainland government covering up the initial outbreak of the virus. But that feeds into, again, anti-mainland sentiment, Um, people calling for the border to be shut and for for mainlanders to be kept out. And exactly the same kind of Racism that we're seeing around the world um, also has manifested itself here in, in Hong Kong, so I think that that message that you that that very important message that you had at the start of the program applies equally here um, to protesters who who need to be careful not to mix up their, their political aspirations with with, with xenophobia and, and racist sentiments.
0: Yeah. And it certainly has been an issue that um, not just in this situation, but as you say, in coronavirus, that so many people often don't realise that they're conflating criticism of the CCP government with um, the Chinese people. And that can obviously be deeply um, affecting and hurtful for anyone who um, is from the mainland China or identifies as Chinese Australian or Chinese American or, um, you know, anyone of that um, background. So I guess, yeah, it's something that Uh, can often be unintentional um, but obviously we need to pick it up and call it out Mm. when it does happen because um, you wouldn't want that to deflect from what the key point of the protest was which was not about um, being anti the Chinese people and certainly shouldn't have been um, that it was about something else entirely
1: yes absolutely yes
0: um Anthony, gosh, I wish we could keep talking (laughs) because it's such (laughs) a fantastic book and there's so, so much to unpack. Um, But I really do hope that uh, people can support booksellers and also authors like yourself and uh, buy their books and order it online or order it over the phone from their local booksellers. And, um, and I want to say also congratulations on this book because I think it is really um, beautifully written and, and it definitely shows that you've taken a lot of care and thought and um, a lot of insight into what was going on. So I really do appreciate your time today and also um, the the great depth and um, nuance that you go into in this book.
1: Thank you so much. That's that's really very kind. I am um, really appreciate it. And it's been great to talk to you once again. Thank you.
0: Yes. Hope we can pick it up again. Right. Hopefully when you're out of quarantine, which is only two days, so I'm sure.
1: <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's right. Freedom's just around um, yeah, the corner. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and it's unfortunate. I was hoping to actually have a, a, a visit to, to Melbourne and do a couple of events there, but obviously that's on hold now given the situation. But I hope to make it down soon, and uh, yeah, uh, meet everyone uh, in person that would be great. in an event in Melbourne.
0: Well, we'll let everyone know when that does happen because I'm sure you have uh, a fair few fans over here. Right. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you so much, Anthony. I've been speaking with lawyer and author based over in Hong Kong, Anthony Dapperin, and his book we've been discussing there is City on Fire, The Fight for Hong Kong, which is out through Scribe Publications. I'm Amy Mullins, and you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a radio show broadcast on 3 R FM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and 12pm.